9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from New York City. Also joining us today, we're pleased to have Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. Hi, Senator. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. And uh, Lori Garrett, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, one of America's foremost experts on infectious diseases. Hi, Lori. How are you? Hi, David. Thanks. And, of course, because it's Thursday, we have my co-host on Thursdays, Ryan Goodman, the co-editor of Just Security and professor at NYU Law School. How are you, Ryan? I'm doing okay under the circumstances. Thanks, David. Every week, he gets a little quieter. He (laughs) sounds a little more subdued. He's kind of our indicator of where we are in this lockdown process. So I thought the best way to approach this um, uh, might be for Lori to pose a question to Senator Murphy and then Ryan to do it, then I will. Perhaps we'll chat a little bit um, uh, during these uh, first uh, 20 minutes when we're lucky enough to have the Senator with us. So let me turn to you, Lori. Well, that's a real honor. Senator, it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, I think the most important question on my mind is how deeply has the Trump administration devastated the sort of national security slash disease preparedness infrastructure that had been in place, which, by the way, is not just created by Barack Obama, actually goes back to George W. Bush's time and then added to uh, by Lisa Monaco et al. under Obama. How severely was it destroyed? And do you think it's possible to rebuild or are we going to just continue to fly in the dark here? Uh, well, again, great to be with all of you and uh, excited for the conversation over the next 20 minutes. I think there's two ways to sort of come at that question. Um, the first is to make clear that uh, the Trump administration, you know, clearly um, has taken down many of the defenses erected by prior presidents to potential pandemics. Uh, he defunded the PREDICT program, which Uh, put um, American scientists out all around the world picking up viruses and pathogens so that we could study them early. Uh, He stopped funding uh, a um, global public health security program that uh, had been initially funded out of the Ebola dollars that was helping to stand up um, countries' uh, sort of local defenses so that the disease wouldn't become such a big problem uh, in their nation that it would reach our shores. And then, you know, he just by and large walked away from the NSC process Uh, dismantled the specific global health security capacity in the NSC. But the NSC really exists to be able to do longer term planning, to be able to think about threats that aren't in the headlines. And the president has had mostly disdain for the NSC cycling through advisor after advisor, and that left us vulnerable. But the second way to approach that question, and I won't go into depth here, is to, you know, just, um, I, I think, admit that Um, No president has taken uh, global public health seriously enough that 
even if President Trump had continued all of the programs that were in place in 2016, we were still inadequately resourced. I mean, going into 2017, we were spending about $6 billion on non-AIDS global public health security. We spent about another $6 billion on um, PEPFAR and related programs. Compare that to 650 to $750 billion uh, on tanks and planes and aircraft carriers and guns for the military. Um, you know, we were never properly resourced given the reality of the threat posed to the United States by a pandemic like coronavirus versus the threat posed to the United States vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis a conventional invasion of foreign forces. And I think we have to admit that as we try to rebuild. Um, we aren't just rebuilding what existed in 2016. We've got to build something that we frankly have not conceived of prior to this moment. Well, as long as you bring up defense preparedness, the whole incident with the USS Theodore Roosevelt and um, the dismissal of the captain, now, I think latest I saw, there's over 400 confirmed COVID cases on, among the sailors on that ship. We know that there are other cases in other military settings around the entire U.S. Um, military presence worldwide, including at least two other ships in the Pacific Fleet. And, uh, you know, you have to ask, at what point do we have to recognize that we have a potential um, vulnerability or weakness in our military safety net, not just for the sake of the affected personnel, but for the sake of our national defense. Do you think this is serious enough that it warrants um, some special and urgent attention from Congress? Well, I, I think it does. Uh, and I think we all worry about how seriously the chain of command takes the health of our soldiers when uh, the captain of the Roosevelt uh, felt the need to do something rather exceptional, which was to uh, send out this communication to a broad array of individuals who could do something about it. Uh, my impression is he only took that step because he did not think that by uh, sort of following the careful chain of command, he was going to be able to save the lives of, uh, of his sailors. Um, and so I think we have to have a, a broader discussion about the military's readiness uh, to be able to protect our men and women in uniform because um, there is really no way to properly socially distance uh, our soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines who are living in very tight quarters uh, and because of the missions that they undertake uh, becomes very hard to separate them in the way that we can for those of us that just go back to our houses and work from our dining room tables. So um, I think we're all very worried about uh, how serious the Trump administration is taking the health of our soldiers, something that Congress needs to focus on. But what about the vulnerability of the Pacific fleet and the possibility of, let us say, um, longer range missile testing by North Korea or uh, Chinese uh, naval operations in the South China Sea or off the Japanese territorial waters? Uh, if we have a significant percentage of our Pacific fleet hunkering down with COVID or at port because of COVID, uh, are we in a weaker position? Is this a vulnerability that merits serious concern right now? Well, it, it, it does, but of course it underscores the original point I was making, um, which is that 
you know, that, um, that aircraft carrier that uh, had to come into port because hundreds of sailors were, um, were sick, um, when it is um, retired, uh, will be replaced by a machine that will cost more than the annual U.S. global health budget. And yet that aircraft carrier um, had to be taken out of service, had to be stood down from its mission because of a virus. Um, and so it just sort of speaks to the misallocation of resources right now um, when we're spending 10 times as much, uh, excuse me, when we're spending 100 times as much money uh, on buying new aircraft carriers and building new jet planes uh, as we are on identifying these viruses early enough so that they don't become a threat to our sailors who are on these ships or our soldiers who are stationed in Korea. So let me go to Ryan now. But but before I do, just add parenthetically for the audience um, that the senator had a a column in, I think it was Foreign Policy a few days ago, in which he, he, uh, he wrote about the need to prepare for the next pandemic um, and how important it is that we recognize these vulnerabilities. I think it follows on the points that Laurie was making that, you know, not only do we have to deal with the crisis at hand, but we have to recognize the vulnerabilities that it has um, illustrated uh, so that we can learn from it and not be vulnerable again. And so I, I commend to everybody's attention that column. But Brian, Ryan, do you have a question? Sure. So I also just wanted to thank uh, you for joining us for this conversation and for your leadership on these issues. Um, I guess the one of the issues I wanted to drill down on is the role of inspectors generals um, inside the administration, kind of a form of an internal check. And it seems like the president has, as of late, woken up to the fact that this could be a check um, against abuses of power. Uh, so he abruptly uh, fired the Inspector General for the Intelligence Community, uh, Michael Atkinson. He abruptly removed the Acting Inspector General for the Defense Department, Glenn Fine, from being the chairperson overseeing the um, process for making sure the allocation of the $2.2 trillion spent on the coronavirus fund is done appropriately. When asked by a reporter recently about an Office of Inspector General report from the Health and Human Services that identified serious concerns among hospitals, he immediately said, like, get me that person's name, and it sounds like that could be political. Um, So in light of all this, there has been some bipartisan action, I guess, in the last 24 hours. Senators Grassley, Collins, and Romney had joined a letter with uh, some Democratic colleagues uh, demanding answers to the question of having fired uh, Mr. Atkinson without any, didn't seem like any cause. And you have made uh, powerful statements about this as well and mentioned that you were working on legislation. So that's, you know, turning it to you in a certain sense of asking you, what do you think are the weaknesses in the current system that legislation can fix? And what do you think the prospects are of us seeing that legislation pass? Well, you know, I'm, I'm on deep state radio right now, uh, and it is important to remember that, you know, this president and many, many Republican senators and congressmen truly do believe that the president's agenda is being obstructed on a daily and hourly basis by a cadre of civil servants that are out to destroy the president. Uh, and this is 
um, a philosophy that is that is not fringe. It is very much mainstream in the Republican Party uh, right now. And these inspectors general uh, are in many ways to Republicans in the Trump White House, the most visible part of the deep state, the, the point of the spear. And so they are um, using um, this crisis as America is focused on getting rid of coronavirus as an excuse to try to do a sweep of inspectors general out of office and put Trump acolytes in their place. I'm, I'm glad that there was a letter sent um, asking about the firing of Inspector General Atkinson, but it was just a letter. Republicans are pretty good at sending letters every now and again. They're not so interested in actually providing a statutory check on the president, um, which is to say the legislation I'm drafting, which would give inspectors general seven-year terms, um, I'm not sure we'll have a Republican co-sponsor attached to it. I'm trying to get one, but I haven't had any takers. I have lots of Republican friends. I have lots of Republican co-sponsors of legislation I introduce on other subjects. So it's not as if I don't have people on speed dial, but I think on this issue, they're more interested in sending letters, not as interested in actual legislative checks. And I think the danger here is, um, you know, is, is just really, really grave. I think the president does see um, the powers uh, vested in him uh, as um, available to be used to get himself reelected. And he wants to remove as many barriers as possible to using the $2 trillion in coronavirus funds or the intelligence services uh, to try to um, arrange um, a pathway to reelection. And that, of course, is a um, massive and perhaps fatal perversion of democracy that we can't allow to happen. And I think the firing of the, AG, of the IGs is just an indicator of what he is potentially going to try to get away with uh, as we head toward the election. Lori, do you got to go back to you? We've got uh, uh, five minutes. Well, I want to get back to the whole question of preparedness for the next big one or for the second wave return of this one, uh, which is inevitable. Uh, what we've seen over the years is that there's a great huff and puff when an epidemic is ongoing. And then as soon as the epidemic disappears, everything about preparedness and uh, bolstering the global health capacity disappears once again from the radar screen in these two-year election cycles where, you know, you can always get points and votes for favoring FEMA protection uh, for, say, hurricane response. But that once-in-50-year, once-in-100-year event, catastrophic as it might be for a pandemic, never garners the kind of attention it needs. How can we get past this? Fundamentally, once and for all, taking advantage of the COVID crisis to really push through some meaningful legislation. Well, I, I, I think it's hard to compare, you know, what we're going through today to anything that we have experienced in our lifetime. Uh, I, I mean, we lost 9 million jobs during the entirety of the Great Recession from 2008 to 2000, uh, 2007 to 2009. In two weeks, we lost 10 million jobs. We are going to have more people unemployed um, as a percentage of the country's labor force um, uh, over the course of this spring and summer than at any time since the Great Depression. Uh, so I don't think there's any um, uh, 
I don't think there's any reason to fear that there won't be an imperative from the American public to fix what went wrong. Uh, and my argument that I make in that foreign policy speech that David re referenced is that we need to start now because the next pathogen, the next virus isn't going to wait for us. And so we need to start the work of rebuilding that international anti-pandemic infrastructure today. Um, but I do think the American public are going to demand this. I mean, the pain um, that is going to be wrought on this country, that is being wrought as we speak, not just in terms of the tens of thousands of people who will die and the grief and trauma that ripples forth from that, um, but from an economy in which we might be sitting on 15 to 20% unemployment um, is, um, is going to uh, result in the electorate demanding change. So I guess I'm not as worried about the sort of same cycle of headlines and then um, sort of disappearing imperative uh, happening in the wake of coronavirus. So Ryan, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just going to piggyback on that because also coming off of your foreign policy piece, uh, you made an analogy to post 9-11. You said after the, after, in the aftermath of 9-11, quote, U.S. leaders at the time understood the gravity of the moment and moved mountains to impose systemic change. The same level of focus and commitment is what Americans need now, end quote. So I agree with that. I, I just wanted to ask you then, what do you think about the idea of a kind of 9-11 style commission that Representative Adam Schiff has proposed as a device for getting us there, kind of a nonpartisan, bipartisan commission to study what went wrong? And what do you think about the timing of when that commission would ideally be stood up? Uh, so he has, I believe, suggested that it would only be stood up after the election. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is happening at a very strange political moment in that um, the uh, we're going to be in the middle of this crisis at the same time that we're in the middle of an election campaign. And there's just no way around the fact that the president's response, his lack of response, uh, his really failure to stand up an adequate um, response is going to be a big part of this election. And Vice President Biden, should he be the nominee, as it looks he will be, is going to run a campaign based on an alternative uh, response that he would have administered should he have been in office. Um, so I think it's going to be difficult in the short term to take the politics out of this issue, which is why it may make sense for a commission like the one that Adam Schiff is envisioning to begin after the election. And uh, I think it's a good idea as long as you can make sure the people on it are apolitical, uh, that they are experts in the various fields that need to be a part of uh, an inquiry like this. Um, but I do agree that you probably have to wait until the election is over to do that kind of uh, deep dive. Although I will say, you can't wait until then to start uh, rebuilding some of the infrastructure. We're going to have um, appropriations bills that will need to be passed over the summer and the fall. And I would argue that in those appropriations bills, we should start making the down payments uh, on the global anti-pandemic programs um, that we think are going to be necessary. So you don't have to wait for that commission to um, start funding the beginnings of uh, a, uh, a, a new way of doing things. Well, Senator, I want to thank you very much. Uh, we've uh, promised to take only 20 minutes of your time. We've taken a little more than that. Uh, and as always, uh, your contributions have been terrific. 
and uh, you know, we hope you'll you'll join us again here uh, uh, as this uh, crisis unfolds. Because uh, I'm afraid, uh, listening to discussions like the ones that we've had with Laurie and other experts, uh, this we are still in fairly early stages um, of 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 the crisis and um, and its aftershocks. So. We'll invite you back in the future. But for now, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. So let us go now to some questions. Uh, we, a few weeks ago, we did a, a question and answer session where uh, Ryan and I peppered Lori with questions. And I, I should tell you, that was one of the most popular shows that we've done, one of the highest rated shows that we've done. Um, so people want to pick Lori's um, brain and, and, you know, uh, let me, let me start by, um, asking a question that, uh, sort of came out of the conversation we were having before we started, but Lori, you were talking about some new data that's come out that has given us some insights into what's going on with, um, uh, coronavirus. And I thought maybe we could talk about that a little bit and then we'll go from there. Well, as you know, David, there's been a call for racial disaggregation of the COVID numbers to understand who is suffering most in this epidemic in the United States and how does it correlate with race, ethnicity, um, socioeconomic status. And of course, we all know that most white folks have jobs that allow them to work from home and fewer African-American and Latino folks have such jobs. So right from the get-go here in New York City in the epicenter, um, you know, we can see, it's, it's visually obvious that there's a racial uh, dis, uh, distribution that is unfair, that there's a disequity somehow. But how can we explain it? So finally, the city released data, this is only um, fatality data. In other words, the racial distribution of the deceased. Um, and you can see a very great unfair uh, tragedy unfolding with about nearly 23% of the deceased so far in New York have been uh, Hispanic Latino. About nearly 20% are African American. You drop all the way down for whites to 10% and Asians to 8%. Now this is not who's getting infected. This is who's dying as a result of infection. Um, and that's a big, big point because what we don't have is data that tells us who's getting infected out there because we don't have those tests and we all know the saga of why we don't have those tests. Um, uh, but it, it, is, it, it does very neatly seem to parallel data for hypertension. And hypertension is one of the key underlying diseases associated with a fatal outcome from COVID because it functions through the same receptor mechanisms that the virus acts through. Um, if this is, in fact, hypertension that we're looking at, then it can be addressed. We don't have to just throw our hands up in the air and say, oh, my God, we have a racist society. Oh, my God, there's economic disparities. Both those are true statements, but they can't be resolved in time, you know, before the end of this pandemic. Uh, those are structural issues in our society. But if this medical issue can be resolved by addressing one underlying symptom, hypertension, which is relatively easy to address, 
um, then we might have a something of a breakthrough in at least reducing the fatality rate. Interesting. Ryan, do you have a reaction or question for Lori? Um, sure. So I wanted to also kind of dovetail with part of the conversation that we're having with Senator Murphy about the you know massive economic dislocation, job losses, and things like that. Um, and it looks as though the president is trying to reframe the issue to say, hey, you know, the baseline was going to be 2.2 million deaths if I did nothing. But if I can get the number of deaths of Americans under 100,000, then uh, what a very good job I've done. And I guess I wanted to get your sense of a couple pieces, which is the first one is what about the economic devastation? We frame this so much in epidemiological terms strictly as the public health implications for not having acted earlier. But isn't it also fair to think about it and that we should also be thinking about it as the economic implications for not having acted earlier? Is it, is it right to think, look, if there was earlier testing, earlier contact tracing, we would not have had to have gone through necessarily this level of a shutdown. It could have been other forms of uh, addressing or counteracting the pandemic before getting to more extreme measures that were the only, you know, the last resort. Is that, is that the right yeah, way absolutely. to think about it? Ryan, let me tell you, I'll give you a quick anecdote that illustrates what you're getting at. Um, there are a few companies that were reaching out to me starting in January because they were worried about infection in their labor force. These are all multinational companies that have operations spread out in our globalized world with, you know, manufacturing in multiple countries to, for a single thing, like a car with parts made in 12 countries or a computer with parts made in six countries. And in one of those manufacturing sites, they had a COVID case and wanted to, knew, to know, well, what should we do now? And can we make sure our, our whole chain of supply is safe and no, we, we won't contaminate con, uh, consumers or other workers down the assembly line? And how do we decontaminate the space that this worker was in? And all of that. And I can tell you that um, every single company that reached out to me was incredibly earnest about wanting to protect their labor force about wanting to minimize the, the damage. And the last thing they ever asked me about was the economic consequences. They wanted to know, how can we tell our whole labor force in, in these six plants or five countries that it's safe to go to work and to continue to work the way they were? And if it's not, what do we have to change? Just tell us, they never once asked me, well, what if it costs a million dollars to make that change, right? And in every single case, the frustration was trying to get people tested. Mm. You know, I, one place in particular had a product line that was actually a medical product line. And they felt it very important that that product continue to get out the door because it's relevant to this epidemic. And they could not, they knew they had one definitely infected, sick, hospitalized worker and they were assuming that the workers around that individual had been exposed. But they were so frustrated that they couldn't get any tests done. They couldn't find anybody in anywhere that could tell them how to come in and limit the extent of it in their workforce. Well, we're still in that exact situation. And going forward, to get out of this dire economic situation that we're in, 
and not just us, the whole world is in, where we could potentially see, you know, 20% of global wealth disappear entirely from the planet over the next year. And massive debt left to the next generation in order to bail us out, right? On supplying little boosts to currencies and bond markets all over the world with central banks just borrowing against the future so your grandchildren can pay it off, right? Um, in all of these cases, I think that it behooves everybody to remember China was hit first. So let's look at what China's doing today. You know, they've just reopened Wuhan. They, they're encouraging workers to get back to the factories, get back to production. Let's get going, everybody. Come on, we got to get this economy rolling. But meanwhile, new cases are being reintroduced into the society, both foreign travelers uh, and their own movement of people from one part of the country to the other as people go back to their home cities after this long lockdown period. And they will only get through this and not have another giant outbreak in the next month or so if they do massive testing. And if everybody who's coughing on the work line gets a COVID test. Uh, and we don't have that capacity. You know, all this talk about we're going to get our economy going again in May. We're going to get our economy going in June. We're going to get it in July. When are we going to get it? We have no idea because we're not testing people. So we, and we don't have a toolkit available that could really do the important test, serology, that would see, you know, does Ryan have antibodies to COVID, to the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus? Do you have antibodies? Because... Ryan, if you're going to go back to your normal office, instead of talking to me as you are now from your home, all your co-workers want to know that you're not going to come in and infect them all, right? But you would like to know if you need to be worried about being infected because, hey, if you have neutralizing antibodies, it means maybe you got infected, you never got really sick, it felt like a cold to you, not much worse, and now it's safe for you to go back to work. You know, you're not at risk. We don't have the capacity to do any of that. There's just nothing. There's all sorts of inventions. I mean, there are plenty of tests out there, but they're not getting commercialized into the scale of production that would make it a real, um, a real success out there. Hi. We're all going through an extremely difficult time, and we're looking forward to the day that we can all be together again. Uh, in fact, on September 10th, 2020, the DSR Network, together with other popular podcasts and blogs, including The Daily Beans, uh, Just Security, uh, The Lawfare Podcast, Talking Feds, Words Matter, Gaslit Nation, and a lot of others that you know and love, are going to bring together all the participants of those podcasts live and in person to you at what we call the Washington Today Forum but will probably be better known by its initials, WTF. Taking place at the historic Warner Theater in Washington, D.C., this one-of-a-kind event will bring together the hosts of your favorite podcasts along with special guests to discuss how to reclaim our democracy and some sense of normalcy in these uncertain times. The event will include opportunities to interact with the hosts of your favorite podcasts at a suitable distance, of course, uh, lunch, and a cash bar reception at the conclusion of the event. The tickets to the all-day-long event 
that includes two meals and all this interaction and all these great guests um, are a hundred bucks, but you can purchase them at a discount um, uh, through May 31st, just $75. As a listener to our podcast, you can take an additional $10 off the price of admission by visiting the dsrnetwork.com, select events in the nav menu, and enter Washington t- and select Washington Today Forum. You enter uh, the code DeepState10 at the checkout, uh, and you'll get that $10 off discount. So that's go all those steps. Go to Washington Today Forum, enter the code DeepState10 at the checkout, and you'll get 10 bucks off the already low price. Um, better still, if you decide that right now is the time you want to become a founding insider, you'll receive 20% off the membership and a special edition PodCon 2020 mug and a code to purchase the ticket to the event for just 40 bucks. So that's an incredible deal. And it helps DSR as we enter into, in just a couple of months, our third year of broadcasting um, by giving us support at this difficult time. So we encourage you to go and become a member, as we had for a long time, or buy tickets to the podcast, uh, this live event, or both. Uh, Existing founding insiders will receive the code to purchase their tickets for 40 bucks. So if you've already helped us, you're going to benefit from this too. More than ever, the DSR network is committed to bringing you the analysis and expertise that you've come to rely on for these past several years. We're incredibly grateful to you for your your support, and we look forward to seeing you in September um, and perhaps often again after that. Thank you. You know, it's as, as I listen to you talk about it, um, it, it underscores for me something I was thinking when you were talking to uh, uh, Senator Murphy. And something that I've thought about for a long time, uh, you know, as Ryan knows, and, you know, I, I don't know if it came up on one of the podcasts that you were on, Laurie, but a long time ago, I wrote a piece about SARS and talked about infodemic and, and the word caught on, right? And, and it talked about how you can have an underlying epidemic, but the consequences of the infodemic can be greater because it drives economic results, drives social, political and, and, and so on. Um, and that was a kind of a simplistic way to talk about it, although I, I've noticed that WHO has been talking a lot about the infodemic. And I don't really think that we ever, or I anticipate, I wrote that piece in 2004, I don't think I anticipated what would happen if the United States government would become one of the primary purveyors of misinformation and the Chinese government would be purveying misinformation, and the the Russian government would be purveying misinformation, and the Brazilian government would be purveying misinformation, and the Indian government, and that, you know, that there was more, you know, sort of official misinformation than than many people were getting truthful information. Well, and then add to that, not only misinformation and deliberate trolled disinformation, but that we would yesterday have had um, the Director General of the World Health Organization, um, livid, nearly his voice cracking, describing the racial assaults he has received, the death threats he has received, right. and saying, you know, I haven't talked about this before, all the racist things thrown my way as the first African head of World Health Organization, because I don't care about me personally, but now it's racial assaults against the continent of Africa. It's against 
all black skinned people, now I need to speak out. You know, everything is conflated, David. We have, we have racialism, racism, uh, lies about drugs, you know, go out and buy this drug, it'll treat you, and coming right from the head of state. Right. And also, it's become a partisan issue. I noticed the GOP last night was tweeting, saying the mainstream media was had taken a biased position on hydroxychloroquine, <laughs> and and that this was the this this was not science; it was partisanship. And 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 the the consequence of that, just like the consequence of of some of the president's statements about opening things up is that we now have a political line drawn where there's a litmus test. You're a bad Republican if you believe in the data. You're a bad Republican if you don't believe in hydroxychloroquine. You're a bad Republican if you don't think people should get together in the church. Well, so and there's not, there's not a single scientific study that uh, demonstrates that hydroxychloroquine works. And there are side effects with hydroxychloroquine. And more importantly, now that the epidemic is beginning to emerge in Africa in a big way, um, and starting to, it's now spread to almost every country on the continent, uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine is the number two backup drug for treatment of malaria across the continent. It is artemisinins are the first line therapy, and hydroxychloroquines are second line therapy. And if you render hydroxychloroquine no longer available in the marketplace because all kinds of people in the Northern Hemisphere are suddenly dosing themselves with it who don't have malaria and, and, and the basis of, I don't know what, think it will cure their COVID or protect them from COVID or what have you, then that means there's a shortage of available supplies where it's really needed. We already have people here in the United States who have been taking it for lupus, a terrible autoimmune disease, um, fortunately, relatively rare, and they can no longer get hydroxychloroquine, which actually does benefit them uh, because it's off the marketplace. It's been bought up through this political process. And you can go the next step and see uh, survey after survey, whether it's the Gallup poll, the CBS News poll, uh, Kaiser Family Foundation poll, they all show a red state, blue state, um, Democrat, Republican divide on every aspect of this epidemic. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's going to get worse as we go into the next phase, which is the how quickly we open up phase or the open up phase versus the prepare for the second wave phase. Um, and the divisions are going to be horrible. Anyway, the, the point I was getting at there, and I'm turning to Ryan now, but the, the, the point I was going to get there is it really is striking the degree to which you have the epidemic or the pandemic, the infodemic, there's the economic consequences, there are security consequences, such as the ones that you were talking about in terms of troop readiness, but there's also a security consequence that's associated with social resilience, that you can have a disease like this go into society and produce um, with, a, with a fairly modest introduction into society the biggest economic upheaval in the United States since the Great Depression, the biggest unemployment crisis in the United States ever by a factor predicted to be 50% higher than the worst moment of the Great Depression. It's got us on our knees. And, and, and I, I guess the point is that to understand that, you don't just need to have you know, global public health in the NSC. 
you really need to have from the beginning and throughout a kind of interdisciplinary approach to understanding the not only the, the sort of science of the origins and the spread of the diseases, but the potential consequences. Mm-hmm. And and I and we don't have anything like that. The, the no, no, no. And and I've been through this, as you said in the opening. I've been through this since the late 1970s, early 80s. Um, looking at emerging diseases, and the big one of my lifetime until now was HIV in terms of a disease pandemic that spread around the world despite all our best science at the time. And, uh, you know, I've been to endless meetings that, that were corporate level or World Economic Forum or World Bank sponsored, where there was hand-waving about the likely economic consequences of a great pandemic. Never once did I see that hand waving go over about $100 billion, right? So, I mean, even the official, if we had a repeat of the 1918 flu, the World Bank was modestly talking, well, maybe, gosh, it might actually get up to maybe a half a point of global GNP. Well, we're way past that. And the idea that this epidemic, it has, this pandemic, has caused economic consequences that so far outstrip worst-case scenario projections. Larry Summers was, the, was, was often derided by other economists for what they thought were his wild projections of economic consequences of a pandemic. Now he's, he's kicking himself at how small his numbers were and how much he underestimated it. Even now, uh, the World Economic Forum just launched their own COVID initiative, right? Uh, the Davos Group. And they're talking, you know, a billion here, a billion there. And to which I say to them, you're, you're off by log scales. You haven't even, if you, you're looking at trillions of dollars of losses and you want to fight it with a few billion over here, what's wrong with this equation? You know, I think that the entire... Uh, global financial community should be willing to concede right now that the big lesson of all of this is it's in their self-greedy interests to tithe a certain level of financial interactions going forward forever to create a giant fund for addressing, preventing, addressing, and responding to outbreaks. The idea that they would suffer this level of economic losses and see this level of unemployment and just shrug and imagine that the UN will fix it up in the end? Please, what is with, wrong with these people? Yeah. If it's costing you a trillion dollars to have this pandemic play out in, in your sector of the economy, why wouldn't it behoove you permanently on an ongoing basis to tithe at 0.1% of a certain kind of monetary exchange or financial currency interactions so that you're putting into an annual fund, say, $100 billion. You know, that's trivial compared to the scale of what you're losing right now. Yeah, well, and also, sorry, Ryan, but also, you know, I, I just remember Elizabeth Warren standing up and saying, we need health care for everybody. And they were like, what are you, crazy? That was going to cost $20 trillion. We're going to spend half that in the next six months mm-hmm. on the bailout of this thing, which is caused by you know, not being prepared, not having healthcare for everybody. And in the same way, you know, in Europe, if, if you had a, uh, as, as they do, 
um, social safety net. So everybody knew their salary would get paid. You wouldn't have the economic crisis that you've got now. Well, there's another piece to this. And that is that we've built this whole enterprise that we call global health. And the whole global health enterprise has been built on a kind of rich world to poor world dynamic that put the poor world in the status of charity recipient. You know, we'll fight your HIV. Here's a few hundred million dollars worth of this and $20 million worth of that. By the way, you better show us some gratitude. <laughs> Say thank you. Thank you, America. Thank you, Gates Foundation, etc. But none of it has ever been at a scale that could possibly allow uh, the poorest countries in the world or even the middle-income countries of the world to be self-reliant and to be in the global marketplace for health, competing for nurses, doctors, medical supplies, and so on against the wealthy world. And so now what we're going to see is this epidemic is going to shift to the Southern Hemisphere um, in our summer, their winter. We're going to see this explode in some of the poorest countries on the planet. And that will be the test of humanity. Do we all sit back like voyeurs watching a death toll mount in a country like Mali or uh, in the slums of Nairobi and uh, Cape Town uh, and say, gee whiz, wish we could help you out. But you know what? We've got this unemployment crisis back home and we're up to our eyeballs in debts here. And we're trying desperately to buy up the global supply of N95 masks and PPEs. So we're ready when this thing comes back to us again in uh, December or January. So sorry, poor world, but you're on your own. And I really terribly fear that this is where we're headed. So that, you know, not only are we facing the most consequential economic consequences of disease ever. Um, but we're going to also see a complete shattering of that modest structure of solidarity and global assistance that was what we called global health. Right, which loads the gun for the second wave. Ryan, I, I stepped on your question here, so. Yeah, um, I just want to echo uh, what Laurie just said, and then I do have a question about the CDC's role. Um, which is I think it actually dovetails, Laurie, with what you'd begun this segment with about uh, racial minorities and the impact on them. And it's also something that was, there's so many things that were repulsive in the president's tweet about after this, we should all forget about it, except for those people who lost a, a relative. There's so many things about that that are repulsive. But one of them is there are also impacts on communities, not just individuals. And I agree with you that I think one of the greatest concerns I have is that we don't emerge out of this recognizing the need for universal health care or things like that and solidarity and how our weakest link is the, you know, our, we're as strong as our weakest link, but instead the opposite of what you've just described at a global scale and nationally that it breeds a repulse, a morally repulsive sense of who is cast aside and not even attempted to be helped, and even recognizing our own responsibility in that. It's just, I, I'm very worried that we emerge as a society globally and, and nationally that um, uh, starts to make those kinds of choices in a way that uh, just is deeply unethical. Um, so just to put those two pieces in, in, that, in that way. 
Um, I guess the one question I do have, it's, and it's a little bit of a selfish question, just because we're thinking about working on this at Just Security, is the role of the CDC in all of this. And it somewhat dovetails. I could, it's, all, it's easy. Like I could pick any part of our conversation to link it to. But the um, hydroxychloroquine question, so the CDC, until very recently, apparently on their website, had very favorable things to say about hydroxychloroquine, despite the fact that there aren't these studies out there proving its uh, validity. I guess one thing that'd be helpful for listeners is if you could describe what historically is the role of the CDC in a pandemic that we aren't seeing here so that it can give a sense of what isn't part of our public health infrastructure right now that's not operating correctly. How much is the CDC missing from action? Um, Not just the politicization of it, but missing from action in how much of this has been privatized in terms of the testing or lack of CDC validation or lack of CDC guidance to the hospitals as a kind of the central repository for understanding what uh, scientific studies are producing and then conveying that out. Can you just kind of give us a sense of what the baseline is in other pandemics and what's happening in in a certain sense? Well, Ryan, you've asked obviously a gigantic question, Um, but a very important one. And one that, you know, I, I have a lot of people saying to me, what's up with the CDC? What's, what's going on right now? So let, let's back up. The, the big challenges that the CDC has faced in recent history, uh, without a doubt, the largest was the emergence of HIV, um, which was during the Reagan administration, occurred when a, there was a president who refused to acknowledge that the disease existed, refused to say the word AIDS, uh, and uh, actively blocked efforts to deal with HIV AIDS because it was a, quote, homosexual disease. Um, In that crisis, the CDC had a role to play, and that was to define the nature of the disease, to determine who was at risk and how it was spreading, and to come up with a test in order to tell who was and was not infected, and then to try and do their level best to minimize the amount of spread in the United States and how many people would die. Um, I would say its performance in the end was probably a little better than a C plus, maybe a B minus. Um, There were some courageous folks at CDC who were more than willing to talk openly about what was happening with blood transfusion and obliterating the entire hemophiliac population of America, just wiping young boys out. Um, and the, uh, uh, and objected to calling it a Haitian disease, instead said people from Haiti were at risk because of these risk factors, not that the virus knew they were Haitian and discriminated against them instead of Jamaicans or Dominicans. Um, and you know, tried to aggressively pinpoint the causes, the nature of the spread, the epidemiology, as we say. The next big challenge was um, anthrax in 2001. And there, uh, I give the whole federal government a D minus, almost an F. Uh, Everybody failed. The FBI failed. The CDC failed. The Army uh, laboratory people failed. It was just a disaster. And uh, I wrote a whole book about it, spent eight years trying to understand how did this go so wrong? 
and it was just uh, appalling. And what came out of it was um, a really strong effort by the George W. Bush administration to securitize the CDC, to make it more of an operational agency that could respond to bioterrorism threats and other terrorist-related threats, so that it got securitized at the same time as many other agencies in the federal government did in response to the 9-11 attacks. Uh, and then, you know, Barack Obama had only been in office three months and hadn't even filled the seats. He didn't have a permanent director of the CDC or a permanent uh, Health and Human Services secretary when H1N1 swine flu appeared and globalized within six months to be the largest pandemic of our lifetime until now. And uh, fortunately, it turned out to be a not terribly virulent virus, a form of influenza that was actually probably not even as virulent as a routine annual flu, but highly contagious. And we saw every single mistake play out that is now playing out with COVID. It gave us a trial run and showed us what would come. If we had a pandemic, here's what's coming. And we saw right away, if there was a vaccine, it took longer to develop than was useful in many countries. By the time it was developed, the rich world bought up and used all the supplies. It took direct intervention by the President of the United States to order a certain chunk of vaccine supplies set aside for Africa. Even so, no Africans really got a vaccine until their epidemic had completely passed. Um, the same with treatments, masks, uh, sterile gloves, everything. All those supplies ran out in 2009. And every country tried to keep the flu out with airport restrictions and travel restrictions. There were American full, jets full of Americans that were held on tarmac at Beijing. And uh, a whole pile of Americans and Mexicans that came to Hong Kong were put into solitary confinement um, in an abandoned hotel and locked down, you know, to stop the spread of the virus. Uh, in many parts of the world, it was called the American virus. In Pakistan, it was at entry in immigration, beware the American virus. And all Americans will be checked. But of course, it had completely globalized within six months. It wasn't anybody's virus. It was everybody's virus. And it should have taught us every necessary lesson. If we'd really sat down and looked at 2009, uh, we would have seen and anticipated everything that's going wrong right now. Uh, but, you know, as soon as it had passed, uh, the uh, Obama administration's take-home lesson was we need an infrastructure to respond in the future. So they started trying to develop what became the Global Health Security um, uh, Administration and then initiative. And they convinced key partners, Germany, uh, Norway, uh, the World Health Organization, World Economic Forum, and eventually the G20 to back them up in creating an infrastructure for training in developing countries, building up laboratory capacity, surveillance capacity, and so on. And interestingly, the day that President Obama announced this initiative in uh, January of uh, 2014, um, Ebola was spreading to three countries in West Africa. And uh, 
So barely had the initiative been launched when, in fact, it was already being put to the test uh, in West Africa. And that epidemic taught us another whole set of lessons we should have learned. And we should have uh, said, all right, as Senator Murphy was saying, let's really develop an appropriate preparedness and response capacity. And, you know, it, by the time that epidemic was over in 2015, for, in terms of the American engagement, uh, you know, there was an attempt in the White House to build up a serious infrastructure that involved the National Security Council all the way down with a real chain of command. Which agency supersedes what other agency? Who oversees if something happens? Um, it was a, uh, a work in progress when the Obama administration walked out of office. They handed it off to the Trump administration along with uh, role-playing exercise to show them what it would look like if an epidemic occurred. Uh, and the response from the Trump people was to just systematically defund and eliminate almost all of it. The lessons unlearned is a chilling story of this, uh, and clearly one that goes back a long time, and I think very lucky to have the chance to discuss it with Lori, who has covered it so well. There's obviously much, much more that we could discuss here um, Lori, I, I can't help but think back on the passing references we've made to the testing issue because, you know, at the end of the day, um, we still don't know what's going on, right? No, if, we if, don't have any idea. Right. And, and look, uh, here's one of the biggest controversies right now facing us, and it's huge, and the repercussions and implications are gigantic, and that is this. We now have uh, at least by my count, at least a dozen reports from around the world of individuals who have survived COVID, were definitely known to have been infected, have cleared the virus, and then either it's that they got reinfected or they hadn't really cleared it. It's just that we didn't have sensitive enough tests to find very, very, very ultra low level virus in their bodies. But after a period of time, they take ill again and develop full-blown COVID. Now, there, there's a new report on this out of China that just came out this week, and it has sparked, I mean, I, I can't even begin to tell you the volume of the debates in social media about this, because, you know, if what they did was they searched for what's called neutralizing antibody response. So when, when you have an immune response that is really targeted, it's laser beam good, such as you get after a measles vaccine. Then when your body is faced with that pathogen, again, let's imagine the measles virus, your body, your immune system immediately recognizes, ah, here comes that darned you know, measles virus. Bring out the antibodies. Let's mobilize the T cell response, the B cell response. Boom, knock it out, gone. You never even feel it. You don't experience a fever. You don't experience any ailment of any kind. Your immune system is laser beam focused. But with this virus, of course, what's happening is our species has never seen it before. So no human beings had any immunity at all. What happens when it gets into your body is that, you know, since you don't have antibody memory, your body pulls out the nukes. It goes all out. It's a DEFCON 5, 
throw them all in there. And what makes you sick is the immune response. You're, you're, you're absolutely wiped out. You feel like somebody stuffed cotton in your brain. You're hallucinating. Um, I've had friends that walked through the streets for an hour and can't remember where they were or why they even went outside in a delirium with COVID. Um, you have high fever running up to 104, 105 degrees. And this can go on for days on end. Muscle weakness. Every single muscle in your body feels like somebody is punching it and stretching it and you know, just ripping it apart. And it goes through your whole body like this, and it's actually damage done by your own immune system. Now the question is, do you come out at the end of this horrible process, but finally you've made antibodies? And those antibodies are what's called neutralizing antibodies. So the next time you're exposed to this virus, they will zoom right in like a laser beam and take out the enemy before it can spread in your body and anything else happens. And what the current debate is, you know what, we're not sure we see neutralizing antibodies in everybody. A lot of these people seem to be recovering, but it's not because their immune system did the right thing. And they're not immunized by this history of infection. Now, if that's true, and mind you, this, as I said, is a huge debate going on right now in the medical community and the scientific community. But if this is true, it bodes very poorly for developing a vaccine. And it could mean that people who had gone through the horror of COVID, when another wave comes through, could be reinfected and once again go through it again and again and again. Um, and so we're facing such dire need to have sound, reliable testing, I can't even begin to tell you the stakes. If we don't even know whether or not people are immunized and have neutralizing antibodies, and we can't do surveys out there on a massive scale, you know, we should be testing several million people to see who has antibodies and do the antibodies work. The other thing that's going to be happening now is one of the forms of treatment being tried is to take sera from recovered patients and try to pull out the effective antibody response in that sera and inject it into ailing people who have COVID. Well, I guess that's how we'll find out whether or not they have neutralizing antibodies. It'll be a great experiment conducted in real time on otherwise dying people. It's not the right way to do it. This is, we're running this railroad in the worst possible way. Yeah, well, there's no question about it. We're testing currently one twentieth the number of people that we would have to test if we wanted to test one percent of the population a week. Uh, we've tested less than one percent in New York. The stories that we read in the paper are of um, deaths at home that are ten times the normal rate of deaths at home. Uh, and of course, these are undiagnosed and these are unattributed to the disease. Uh, without the testing, there are a lot of other deaths that are unattributed to the disease. Uh, and as Laurie has pointed out, uh, we are going through this season not knowing what this is, but doing a number of things that appear to be setting us up for a brutal second wave, not just because second waves come, but because the global south will be infected and in an interconnected world, those people will travel around and they will re-spread this 
disease. Um, and that's why when the senator stepped off, I said, we're in the earliest stages of this. I'm afraid we are, and we will have to have many more conversations like this. I feel really, really fortunate uh, that we were able to get uh, Chris Murphy here. I feel really fortunate always when, Lori, you can spend some time with us uh, and go into it and share your expertise. We hope that can happen again soon. I feel real fortunate every week to be sharing the time with Ryan, uh, for which I am grateful, and for all of you who are listening. Uh, every week we'll be doing uh, most of our programming around this, uh, and our goal is in a week or two to introduce um, a webinar uh, that will allow you via Zoom to come in, ask questions in real time to guests just like this uh, to help you know you cope with what's going on as as members of the Deep State Radio family. So look for that. Look for the announcements of that. In the meantime. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Lori. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, thank you, everybody. Stay healthy.